The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. This episode of the Structural Engineering Channel is brought to you by PPI, a leader in engineering exam prep for the PE structural exam. PPI provides expert prep courses and study resources designed to help you pass the PE structural exam the first time. PPI's PE structural course is fully updated and taught with October 2021 code references and includes new editions of their PE structural books. PPI's live online courses include hours of lectures, problem-solving demonstrations, exam strategy sessions, office hours, and a passing guarantee. When you take a live online course, PPI guarantees you will pass or you can take the on-demand course for free. PPI has helped engineers achieve their licensing goals since 1975. Check out PPI today at ppi2pass.com to see all of the resources available for PE structural exam prep. Again, that's PPI, the number two, P-A-S-S dot com. Welcome to this episode of the Structural Engineering Channel, a podcast focused on helping structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field and to help them succeed in their careers and lives. In this episode, we're talking to senior structural steel specialist Alex Morales about structural steel design and how he went from architecture to falling in love with steel. He also talks about some of the latest innovative steel systems designed by AISC and how they are helping structural engineers. I'm your co-host, Matt Picardle. And I'm your co-host, Kara Green. Now let's jump into our conversation of the week with Alex. Alex, first, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you. Now, in your own words, can you please provide our audience a little bit of background on your career journey up to today and how you transitioned from architecture to structural steel design? First off, I'd really want to say thank you both so much for having me here. I think there's a lot of good content that comes out of this channel. And so anytime we're able to sort of come on board and contribute and have dialogue, I think it it makes for a better industry. So thanks so much for doing that. And I'll get right into kind of that career evolution. We're sort of the uh, captains of our own ship, if you will, where we think we're in control of our career, what we're going to do, where we're going to go, you know, what helm are we going to land at? And so for me, it was kind of trying to figure out early on what it was that I wanted to do after going through elementary school and then high school and then getting pressed by my grandmother, who is probably the most influential person in my life, who's really the the one responsible for raising me, but who was also kind of darn strict because she wanted to make sure that I had a plan, right? It wasn't just plan A, but also like, what's your plan B in case plan A doesn't work? The time of graduation where we get really excited in high school and it's like, what are you going to do? You know, what are your plans? And so my answer to grandmother was, you know, I kind of want to be an artist, you know, like drawing, and that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. I grew up in Brazil, right? Because if you can imagine kind of this very laid back style, like the beach bum kind of thing that comes into mind. And growing up in that sort of environment where 
you're kind of sort of asking yourself, what do I want to get out of life? And then you see people kind of hanging out on the beach and drawing and painting the sunset. I'm like, I want that. That's exactly what I want to get out of my life. But, you know, of course, reality sunk in and Grams was like, you know, there's no way that's going to work out because she laid down the gauntlet and she's like, do you know how much I had to work to get to where I needed to get? And do you know where food comes from? And of course, that old adage, money doesn't come from trees. In our case, it was, you know, money doesn't come from banana trees because it's, it's Brazil. And so that's kind of reality, right? So it's one thing where you really love your grandmother, but the other thing is you're kind of also very scared of her, right? So it's kind of that fear of not wanting to disappoint your grandmother that was like, okay, you know, I got to get my act together. What do I do? So kind of researched the whole gamut of careers and what I wanted to do. I kind of wanted to be lifeguard. And that's the other thing, like not a career that you can land on. You got to find something else, right? You can't be a lifeguard for the rest of your life. So many people die in the ocean, you know? I know exactly. I'm like, you know, so many people, it'll be kind of a very safe career. It's also not a career that would pan out. It was architecture for me. And it was along the lines of something between art and science. There's that artistic element and approach to being an architect. But there's also that medium of science of understanding humans and understanding environments and understanding climate and understanding materials and construction. So it's kind of very scientific-y at the same time, but it's artistic. That's the direction that I went and I kind of ran with it, right? So I ended up coming to the States and I graduated from AM. It was uh, probably, I'm not sure if you guys had any uh, colleagues in college that happened to be in architecture, but you sort of live inside of your architecture studio. I did that for a couple of quarters, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And so I'm looking out of my window at, in studio and I see people playing Frisbee and I'm like, I wonder what major they're in because I'm always stuck. I want to do that too, but it didn't quite happen. But it was a, a rigorous program. And at the end of the day, I really did fall in love with that career choice. I began in residential architecture right outside of San Antonio, which is exploding if you guys aren't aware, but it's also one of the major cities that there is lots and lots of development. I can almost see Austin and San Antonio at some point just kind of merging into this huge metropolis. There's like a 45-minute drive or a 40-minute drive, depending on how fast you drive, but they're not very farly placed apart. But that was my introduction to like the real world of like working in architecture and fighting with the plotter like at three in the morning and setting off the alarms. And my boss is calling like, what are you doing up there? I'm like, I'm like the best intern ever, right? Because I'm here at three in the morning and I'm sorry that I woke you up, but you know, I guess I'm working hard, right? So residential, about two years. And then I started getting kind of an itch, like, you know, what do I next? And I would see my peers... And we'd be working on things like facades and the floor plan was kind of all the same. I'm like, uh, you know, can we do something different? For me at the time, it was coming into terms of leaving the safety net of my first job because that's kind of all you know. And so you love the people you work with and you love what you're doing, but you also, like both of you who are stellar, have this itch on career where you want to develop and you kind of are curious. And I think that's the great thing of both engineering and architecture and even construction where curiosity is what leads us to next bigger and better things in the built environment. Residential was fantastic, but I really was curious about the world of commercial design and construction. 
And as they say, I had to leave that nest. And then I ended up working for a commercial design for an architecture. And I'll fast forward some time. I don't think this is true. Both of you can correct me if I'm wrong. But I kind of feel that there's like a three to five year window in career employment where you're like, what's next kind of thing? Like, what else can I do to better myself uh, professionally? Do I go after a credential? Do I try to see if there's something else that I'm interested in? But that's human nature. Seems about right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that if we didn't ask those questions, if we didn't have that itch, I think it would be a very stagnant industry. You know, and the fact that we're not is because people do have those questions and have that itch. I, again, found myself uh, working in really spectacular projects. I worked on anything from K-12 projects to healthcare projects to utility overhaul projects, kind of really grinding, just dealing with machinery and, and dealing with logistics. It was being in the field and doing my punch list and walking and interacting with like the on-site trade of, you know, people that were floating concrete or jipboard or installing rebar. And I'm like, wow, this is so amazing, right? Because you kind of are on one end really quite enamored by the idea of what you're drawing, you know, whether you're using Revit or CAD or you're like, this is really cool. Like this is going to become a building. But then your eyes really, and once you go out into the field and you're like, oh, wait, that's the detail that I was drawing. That's what it looks like in physicality. That was uh, my coming to the moment where I, you know, wanted to join the dark side. That was probably, you know, six years into that career and wanting to see how do I better myself as a designer, right? So I didn't propose to myself, you know, how do I leave my company? I proposed to myself, how do I add value to what I'm doing and kind of become a better designer? I'm not abandoning architecture. I just want to improve my understanding of it. And so that means understanding construction materials and methods and logistics and project management. And so I did, I, I joined a, a general contractor and boy, I mean, if you guys ever tell me, would you imagine that you did what you were going to do? Like, I kid you not. I remember specifically really hot day in August. And Carol, you might appreciate this because down here in Texas and especially in Houston, in the summertime, when you breathe, you're basically inside of a spa and a sauna and there's just so much humidity, right? Yes. For all of our listeners who don't know, me and Alex both worked in Houston around the same time. And we were just talking a little bit about how we were ships in the night. We always met each other at trade shows. So I am very intimately aware of how hot it is in Houston and how humid. <laughs> That's a perfect metaphor, ships in the night, right? Right off the ocean with the humidity. So how amazing is that, right? Yes, that was the idea that in August, one day I'd be doing administrative project management, you know, pushing paper, making sure that the project was bought out, making sure that we were doing our safety checks, making sure that we were communicating with folks that were building the things on the ground. That's uber important in project management. And then the other day, I would be on a roof helping, you know, do unload some material. You never knew what you wanted to do. So hands down, I give, you know, general contractors a big shout out because they deal with so much. You might think differently because some, there are some times when you go into the trailer and they look like they have the best job ever. They're just kind of sitting there. But those are kind of the, the low that goes in cycles in a project, right? So you mobilize a project, there's a slow start and, and you see that you're like, wow, you have the best job ever. But there are times when they were literally working 24-7. I got to do that in August in the heat. And I'm like, wait, did I really sign up for this? And at the time, it was the most awful experience ever because I was probably sweating 10 quarts of water 
that I just drank like three minutes prior. And then the phone was ringing and, and I had clients getting mad at me. Like, why aren't you answering my emails? I'm like, do you realize that I'm on top of the roof trying to unload material right now? Like those are the types of hats that you had to wear, right? And so the notion is you do what needs to be done to get the job done, right? And you're all of these notions of, you know, well, I'm the project manager, so I wear this hat. Those are kind of blurred lines. They really don't exist because you really operate as a team. And so on the general contracting, that dose of humility came like tenfold for me. And it was a wonderful crescendo for me. Finally, as I take you through this very lengthy process of career evolution, I know you're excited. You're like, well, then what happened after that? Well, after that, you know, it was coming to where I'm at now. You know, I'm now at AISC, the American Institute of Steel Construction. And I like to say I probably with some of the most talented, smartest people I've ever worked with. But that passion began in the field because I saw how steel flew together. Like that was for me, like the aha moment of like, wow, like if I wanted to develop a, you hear this term, SME, subject matter expertise. And then you're thinking in your head, like, well, what else do I do? How do I build? Like, how do I contribute? Because I have these panic attacks, Matt and Kara, I don't know if you guys do or not, but sometimes I'm like, I was going to sound a little morbid. Like I'm going to die like at some point. And like, what did I do? And this is really strange to think about. I don't want to call it a midlife crisis. Maybe it is at this stage. You want to do as much as you can with the time that you have now. And that, these are kind of the moments that you think you kind of grapple with. I got attacked by the flying steel. For me, that was like the most beautiful thing. And I wanted to know more about it. And so I came to the most perfect place for that, right? Because all we do at AISC is study, interject the process in, as it's related to structural steel design and construction. So thinking about your career and what you can do next and how you can add value. I think that's definitely something that everyone goes through. Maybe not everyone, but a lot of people that maybe that have a growth mindset and they want to see what they can be doing. That's definitely one of the things that uh, people think about because most people want to add value. They want to grow. Luckily for me, at least in my career so far, it's one of the things that I've been really loving about my career is there's always something different. And I've got to work on a variety of projects. And I know that's one of the things that keeps me in this industry is to get to work on different types of projects. Because even though you may have done one, you can still get better at it or it's a different type of project. And I think that's one of the things that for most people, I think, and will want in their career, having that growth and how they can be of better value to uh, in their careers. For our listeners that aren't too experienced in steel design, could you go over what steel design actually entails? Your listeners are sort of all through the prism of experience levels. But when you think about steel design, you think first in the literal sense, almost like what comes to mind, at least in my head, was you're designing steel. Like, what does that look like? Right. So do you design the sizes of the steel, like how fat or chunky they are? And so... To some extent, then the answer to that is yes. But then I'm going to put all this in a really nice bubble wrap for you or foil, whatever you prefer, or a burrito. The idea of steel design and construction, like in any sort of material, but specifically in terms of steel, you've got a basically X amount of mills in the United States. You've got major mills that produce and roll out steel shapes. You don't necessarily have to des design the shapes. Those are already kind of industry standards and they're set and what, as a designer or as a structural engineer, at least in terms of um, you know, what some of your listeners may do, 
it's selecting that material and sizing it in accordance with the structural loading criteria and the building typology, right? You may go through using you know, a certain wide flange and beam selection for parking garages that would be different for like, let's say a K-12 school. And that has to do with what lives in that building, right? What live loads you have, right? Some loads are dead loads and what that building receives less of live loads. And so those are all kind of the, the considerations that you make as a designer. It's not so much that you're always doing the structural calculations and analysis, which is a big part of it, but you're also designing by virtue of decision-making of what you select based on what you understand that the building's ultimate function will be or bridges or what have you. So that's one aspect of structural steel design. The other aspect of it is something I'm really sort of tout and passionate about, which is collaboration. Because structural engineers work with architects and building owners and a whole gamut of people that have you know, sort of stakeholders that have a vested interest in the project. And so what you do as part of the team is have powwows of this is envision as an architect that you want to accomplish. And me as the structural engineer, uh, based on what you're telling me that you want to accomplish, I recommend that we select this system. Maybe it's not all the time aesthetically driven. Maybe one of the big factors that we have to consider is budget. Like that's for whatever reason, and rightfully so, that's always one of the major factors of what we end up using in a building. And so as a structural engineer, you could say, well, if budget is of a concern, then how do you quantify budget? Well, budget is more than just you know, the cost of the material. It's also the logistics of procurement and fabrication and installation. I'll give you all a quick rule of thumb that you could embed into your design process for all the listeners out there that are going to you know, do great things for the world. For structural steel, there's a good rule of thumb for like a traditional steel package in terms of cost. So the cost for the material for just wide flange structural steel components, there's about a 60-40 you know, split where 40% of the cost is associated with the material. And 60% of it is actually coming from fabrication. Here's where you have really good value that you could bring to your team. You can say, I'm not actually going to be saving more on the material, then maybe I save more out of the fabrication because that's the bigger pot of money. We've got more to sort of manifest there. If you're a designer, you're kind of laying down the foundation for bringing value to the architect or the owner, then you take that into consideration. And you take that one step further by really kind of involving what we love to preach at AISC is talking to your fabricators that can bring to the table ideas on how to reduce fabrication costs. I'll give you a quick story. Not too long ago, we had a, you know, sort of a project that came in through Houston and it was, it's a confidential project, so I can't speak of the name, but it's really neat. And the project, it's kind of shaped like the Louvre in Paris, you know, that big pyramid with glazing all over. Well, that's kind of the intent. I can't give away the name of it. And so architect comes and says, hey, you know, AISC, we've got the GC on board and we want to know how to make this happen. We've never really done anything like this before. This is kind of unique. So what do you propose? The fabricator was actually the most knowledgeable in this regard because they get to say, well, on any given day, our shop operates this way. We have this many men that operate. And so if this is the schedule you want to meet, then we would recommend you know, going with the system because we have that capacity. In having those discussions, you're exponentially reducing risks, right? Because you're defining those unknowns like at the get-go. 
by talking to an entity that has all of the expertise because all they do is work with structural steel day in and day out, right? So that's the other aspect of design or structural steel design. And so I, hopefully that's really refreshing and kind of takes the idea of calculations and meeting uh, structural criteria, which is sort of the given in engineering design. The other aspect of design is to think about the value that you're bringing to the team based on exhausting your resources. And so for that reason, I really advocate for collaboration with folks such as your fabricators, with institutions such as AISC who do nothing but deal in the weeds of steel. Oftentimes, that's what the cost of steel is. I think what goes through on the mind of uh, most structural engineers, the, you know, the weight of steel, and that's probably what's going to cost the most. Like you were saying, the 60-40 rule, that's a great tip. Most of it's going to come from the fabrication and maybe even like the welds or how expensive is gonna, the labor to install that. A lot of the times, maybe going with a bigger size, but reducing that fabrication could save a lot, especially out in the West Coast, at least. I know that's uh, when we're dealing with those heavy welds that could save a lot of money just because the fabrication and how everything comes together, that's actually pretty expensive, like you were saying. A hundred percent. And who knew that there were all these types of welds, right? You would think, okay, a weld is a weld. There's so many kinds and yeah, there are cost implications. So talk to your fabricator. If you don't know who they are, you know, come to folks like me that are all over the country that can uh, really connect you to those experts. And I'll add one thing to that for risk mitigation, which is uber important. What you don't want to do is kind of bring on board a fabricator that doesn't necessarily have the expertise or the portfolio of work in that building typology just to save dollars, right? I know that kind of gets in the, maybe the realm of a general contractor, but if you truly operate as a team, you actually could voice, you know, raise that concern to the GC and just say, hey, who are your qualified fabricators that you're bringing to the table and you know, due diligence effort uh, to make sure that we bring in the right person? You don't want to bring the, the incorrect team and then end up paying for it later. Obviously, you and I worked in Houston at the same time, but a lot of our contractors or the GCs that I worked with would do almost like selective bids. They would just do invites to certain fabricators because they knew that those teams had the capabilities to do whatever construction it was, especially if it was very specialized. That is a great practice. Alex, I'm a little bit curious because there's been a, a story shared with us about how you had a project that you worked on in Houston where you were able to flip a parking garage design from concrete to steel. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What was going through your mind? What was the process and how you were, I'm guessing, able to save the engineer, the contractor and the architect's money? I do want to qualify by saying that I was sort of just the agent of that manifestation because I there's nothing that ever happens in a bubble. So all of the glory for that really goes to the fabricator. And this was, again, uh, making sure that there's a, the right team for the job, et cetera. But the way this happened is in the exercise of exhausting your options for your owner. The conversation was, is this garage going to be a concrete garage or is it going to be a steel garage? And for all intents and purposes, I think it was a design development where the drawings were already at that stage and they were reflected to be post-tension concrete. So in the parking garage, which it happens, but there were other logistics that were associated that were even beyond the immediacy of what was being reflected on the construction documents at that point. And by that, I mean 
the owner was thinking long-term. What does this parking garage want to be later kind of thing? And they're also thinking schedule was the other thing. And, and also risk mitigation and, gosh, I just want to get this done. And so that feeling of like, gosh, I just want to get this done, kind of pointed to steel at that point, traditional steel. Really, it was because there was a need to accelerate the schedule to do as much of the project offsite to mitigate onsite risks. And so when you think of it in terms of if we want to do less work on the foundations, because obviously we're reducing some of that loading, because now we go from you know something that's a little heavier to, to something lighter, then that's less digging in simple terms. That's less machinery on site. That's less bodies on site. That's for the general contractor who was actually really looking forward to this option. Those things were also a very uh, sort of resounding positive because it coalesced not only what the owner wanted to accomplish as far as immediacy, but also they wanted to get off the job site as soon as they could. In the terms for a general contractor, that's kind of always one of the big picture ideas is the least amount of time I am able to be on a project the faster I can turn it over, the more profitable I will be as a general contract. You end up paying less for, of the general conditions. Even your trailer on site, you don't have to pay the rent, et cetera. There's a trickle-down effect to why you know, designing and steel makes sense. We obviously talked about the pros and cons. It was a parking garage. Of course, it, there was sort of enclosure. It was kind of an open-air parking garage. And the other idea is, is here's where it gets really interesting. You want to squeeze as many parking spots as you can. And that's the name of the game for parking garage design, right? Especially in Houston. Especially, exactly, where we're running out of space. We got to fight for feet here and inches there, literally, like that's what you're doing. I'm going to throw out a question for your listeners. I'm going to give them like a half a second to answer it, right? Just virtually. What's one of the biggest benefits of a parking garage using structural steel versus concrete in terms of numbers of parking spots. Ready, set, go. Okay, that's good. I think that was less than half a second, but hopefully you were able to answer. I think I'm going to slow down my coffee here as I finish this part of the story. But the trueness of it is that if you're trying to squeeze more parking spots, that means you need more real estate. That means you need slimmer columns, right? The profile of your column, you can reduce them as much as you can and have the spans a little larger than you can. You literally you know, six inches here, six inches there, six inches there, over time, they translate into a full parking figure. And then that translates into revenue for whoever owns that parking garage. That was the thing, right? We wanted to get rid of as many columns as possible. We exhausted all of the concerns of it's going to be exterior. Does it, is it going to be maintainable? Is thing, are things going to fall apart after everybody was like, okay, no, this is the attack mode and this is what's going to happen. We're defining the unknowns. We're increasing the parking count. We're delivering the project faster. We're actually taking columns out that were there before. And some of the unique parts of this parking garage is that if you can think of a spider, because this is the way architects think, For so if you have any architects out in the, in the audience, I think they will appreciate this. When you think of a spider, especially like these giant tarantulas, and you imagine that the center of gravity is kind of in the middle, their legs kind of stand out, and then they drop down into the ground. And in the middle you've got this mass. And so that's kind of what this parking garage involved as well, where the structure, the columns were actually living on the perimeter of that parking garage. I mean, those are really cool, clever moments that were brought on board by the fabricator first, and then really getting into this collaborative spirit uh, where AISE, we have an entity called the Steel Solutions Center, and they're structural and talented engineers, just like both of you are. And they kind of 
defined what it needed to look. They helped with the sizing. They turned over its study and gave it to the architect, the general contractor, and even the structural engineer, because they actually had a structural engineer on board. But they just wanted to make sure that we were doing all they could to make the owner happy, which is what we ought to do. So they came to AISC and say, okay, fine. What is it that we haven't thought about that maybe you thought about that maybe based on you know the mechanisms you have in your shop as a fabricator, how can we all come to the table, literally sketch out some concepts, then talk to AISC and say, has this been done before? Is there maybe a case study? And then after all those unknowns were resolved, then we turned over that study and said, this is what it looks like out of structural steel. That was it. It was a resounding success, and it went from concrete to steel. And that was, I'm going to give the shout out to uh, MSD fabricators, were the ones that really instrumental in this. Oh, MSD? Yeah, they're small world. Josh Hansen, right? MSD? Absolutely, yes. Josh Hansen. That's a good team. Josh's ears are ringing right now, by the way. So your Structures Mag article also, was it Structures Mag or Steel Construction Magazine or something like that, where you did the article with them? Modern Steel Construction, yes. He's fantastic. I know we're going to talk about mentorship, but do we have an idea of the intersection of engineering, construction, and architecture, and fabrication? I mean, when all of those worlds collide, it makes for amazing outcomes. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because like, I know sometimes as engineers or architects, we almost talk in silos like, oh, well, you know, the GC doesn't know what I'm going through or the contractor doesn't know what I'm doing. And there's sometimes maybe a gap in communication and we're like, oh, well, he just doesn't understand. You discussed a lot about collaboration. And I think when you have like it almost makes you, and me and Matt have talked about this, there's different languages that you have to speak with different people. And fabricator, when you get a fabricator and an engineer and an architect and a GC all in the room together, it forces you to communicate in a way that's very simple, very easy. And it creates like a very, very clear pathway to success. And it sounds like for your parking garage. So I'm glad that you brought that up. And I'm glad that it was MSD. I like them. Absolutely. Before we go on here, I would like to take a minute to recognize our other sponsor for this episode, Menard USA. Do you have projects where you are faced with building on soft or loose ground? Does it seem like all the good sites are taken and you're always building on poor soils that are a challenge for conventional foundation approaches? Menard may be able to help. As a specialty ground improvement contractor, Menard works nationally and internationally providing design-build ground improvement solutions at sites with problematic soils. Typical projects include warehouses, buildings, material storage piles, embankments, roadways, port facilities, storage tanks, platforms, and more. In many cases, ground improvement is less costly than traditional approaches such as removal and replacement or piling systems. Menard works closely with civil, structural, and geotechnical engineers to minimize foundation costs for wide ranges of soil conditions, structure types, and loading conditions. To learn more about Menard USA, or for help on your next project, please visit www.menardusa.com. That's www.menardusa.com. Could you go over some of the latest innovative uh, structural steel systems designed by AISC and how it's helping structural engineers? It seems like AISC had a big part in that and kind of alleviated some fears. What other designs uh, do they do? I'm going to talk about the 
probably my most exciting one. And I mean most because I feel like I own it. I know I don't. I'm just totally flabbergasted by this concept. This is the hard work of literally years of research. And that's what we do as an institution as AISC. We have over 100 years of dedicating laser focus to structural steel research and innovation, and then give that back to everyone who has a stake in the built environment, right? What it is, it's Speedcore. That's one of the, my most celebrated news that I get to share with engineers. It was developed, actually began in an application outside of commercial construction. So it wasn't even meant for commercial construction. It was meant for really sort of strong use of steel in very high security areas. I'm not going to give the name away of, of who it was developed for, but it migrated out of another use into commercial construction. And Speedcore was developed precisely by MKA, uh, engineers out in the West Coast, the Poundcow Foundation, and of course, AISC as well. It's kind of developed and helped spearhead this concept of Speedcore and, and Purdue University, right? Lots of research. What it is, is if you can think about a sandwich where you've got these panels that are made out of steel, those are plate on the outside, and on the inside, you sort of just infill it with concrete. And you might ask yourself, well, what's in the middle? Well, in the middle, there is no rebar because we're actually eliminating rebar. And so what does that mean for when it's actually executed on site? It means that you're eliminating people that have to tie the rebar. I don't know if you've ever been out to a project site, but some of that installation with concrete, I mean, that's pretty impressive and intense, the amount of rebar and tying the rebar and just kind of the bodies that are out there. And then you've got all the forming, you've got all of the wood that is uh, you know, kind of used once. And so we want to not be as wasteful with materials that we use. And this is another great solution because you're also eliminating formwork that would be required for concrete. The Speedcore system has sort of these teeth inside of the sandwich panels that act as sort of holding the panels together and the concrete together. They act as stay-in-place forms. And the beauty of Speedcore is that you, you actually get to build the floors and the core at the same time. So why is this new news? It's because traditionally we talk about innovation in the built environment. And it's really hard to do, but it's great when you finally decide to do it, right? Innovate. And after we had the perfect team to say, hey, let's do this thing that no one has ever done before. It's kind of hard to get used to that, right? Like, here we go, taking risks. But that's what innovation is about. So the response to traditional concrete core construction is speed core. If you think about a 60-story tower, you usually have to build what we're referring to as a leading core of concrete. You build it up so high, you wait some time, you let the concrete cure, and then you go back in and you start building your floors. And so that's the way that we're sort of mainstreamed, used to doing that. And so what's the alternative to that? If our question is on innovation, then we ask those questions. What is the alternative to concrete core, leading core construction? That answer is speed core. Now we get to build the floors and the core at the same time. So we're eliminating curing time and we're accelerating the construction schedule. We're eliminating bodies from being in the field. We're eliminating formwork. We're even eliminating, in some cases, uh, permits that are required to close streets down to, because you need to have the concrete trucks, et cetera. So there's a lot that is even beyond what you might consider immediately that really has an effect on improved performance. The very first project was out at Rainier Square on the West Coast that saved $10 million in construction costs. And it was, I want to recall correctly, it was a 58-story tower. And how on earth does one accomplish that? 
And like that has never been done before, where you get to save money on a project with that scope. And you have you completed ahead of schedule as well. What is this uh, in the eyes of a developer? In the eyes of this developer, it was the, the most amazing news, right? This is like, I'm glad that I decided to be intrepid and, and be the first part of the team to do this. That's never been done before. And now they get to do more. We just had our second one down in San Jose at 200 Park that has also saved over $10 million in construction that just topped off. And this was for a 21-story tower. And it made perfect sense. I mean, when you're saving money, when you're mitigating risks, when you're innovating and giving it back to the industry, you know, this is what inspires, I think, all of us here in this room or in this virtual room to do what we do, right? Because these are the things that we're living in a revolutionary world of a being high-scale construction, right? And it's only going to spread and get better. The idea here is that all we have to do as an industry of stakeholders, of architects, engineers, contractors, and owners is to listen and to be audacious enough to take it a step further and to implement it and execute it as part of your project. And these first two projects are the first two gleaming examples of that and that resulted in success. And the best news is that there's probably, I want to say if I recall correctly, five more on the boards that are coming online. It's not just relegated to the West Coast for seismic. These are projects that could be implemented in any part of the country. So if the design community is not yet aware of Speedcore, ENR did a fantastic article, I want to say last month. So we're in March. So that did a fantastic job on explaining what Speedcore is and why it makes sense and why you should really consider it as part of your project. So think Speedcore. I have heard of it, but I haven't really delved deep into it, but it that sounds really interesting because I think traditionally, at least here in the West Coast, it's usually if you're doing a tower like that, it's going to be a concrete core. But seeing that new innovative way to do make that core out of steel and it can save time and money, that seems really interesting. I'm actually going to look that up now. It's quite phenomenal. I mean, again, the fabricators, one of the biggest players as part of this because these modules are fabricated off-site, these panels, these sandwiches, and they're transported on trucks. And it's really quite impressive. There, I'm sure there are YouTube videos out there that you could see how these are transported. It's like the new Legos of doing things quickly and very efficiently and just stacking them on site, these giant modules. So quite phenomenal. I'd really encourage everyone to take some time to study it and really champion that. Matt and I have had some conversations with people about modular construction and moving things offsite, especially in areas where construction, where maybe there's not like a laid on yard or something like that, where they can actually store those things on site. And logistically, construction is getting very lean. And it's interesting. You can see sometimes I think they do like a night overview of like a bridge or something, which was precast panels, not obviously not steel. I remember watching one of those and it was like eight hours. They fully built a whole bridge that's just like puzzle pieces. It was very cool. The AEC industry is a very interesting one. You have like the older gentlemen who've been in it for 60 something years. And then you have younger, like these programs and colleges. I think you even mentioned you're from A&M. I think they have a really big program to getting students into the construction industry. So In your experience, what are millennials saying about the future of the AEC industry? It's totally the opposite. There's just so much great energy of these ideas. I think we're in a revolution of new ways of doing things. I don't like the term, but I guess if you've heard the the term 
geriatric millennial, right? It's like they're saying that millennials are getting older, but I like to say that millennials are just coming of age. You know, they're kind of going to take the reins on the future of the AEC industry. And the reason why I think it's so optimistic is because of what we're doing right now, is because of this collaborative spirit of telling stories and sharing successes and inspiring others that look like you to say, hey, I could make it in this industry. Not only can I make it, I can contribute, right? I can speak my mind. And I think that's what we do. We speak our minds. I know for me, it took a while to get out of this mindset of not saying anything or deferring because you thought that I'm not old enough to say this. You know, I don't have uh, X amount of gray hairs yet. So I'm going to wait until I do anything. But I feel that as a collective, millennials are a little bit more audacious. They are really saying, I have a voice. I have something to interject. I want to raise my hand for this, right? So the future of the AEC industry in the eyes of millennials, I think is it's an industry that's very collaborative, that is open to dialogue and intersections. So I see a lot of platforms that encourage cross-pollination of engineers and architects and general contractors in an executable fashion. So we're not just saying, oh boy, it'd be great to do this collaboratively. We're actually doing it. And in our offices, we feel that we work for a firm that is maybe a little bit more antiquated, that, Kara, to your point, operating in a silo. I think millennials are raising the issue of, I know some, an engineer that can do this really quite well, or I heard this because I went to this networking event and I heard about the system, and they're bringing that back into the office. So for all intents and purposes, I really feel that we're going to be a very dynamic industry whose owners are going to be proud of what we do because we, our ears are open. We're like sponges. And I think we're bringing that value, that sort of energy and momentum to the built environment. So totally stoked and excited about it. Yeah. And one thing you just said that I think is really important is we're willing to kind of take a chance on the innovative new things. I am a millennial. All of my friends are millennials. We're all of the same age, but we're (laughs) more willing to utilize new technologies and new innovations. And I think that is very progressive. And they always talk about construction. And I've had this conversation with friends who are like teachers or not in the industry. And they're like, is it as like stagnant as it seems or as is, you know, kind of projected into the world? And I'm like, No, like if you really think outside the box and the industry people who decide to not innovate, decide to not, you know, invest in new technologies, they do stay stagnant and then essentially they get pushed out of the market. Those that decide to move forward and really adopt new innovations or even collaboration, those are the ones where you see on those large projects and doing like really, really great stand-up work. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, absolutely. Even in the AEC industry, it's us millennials that are, you know, bring things up to our firms and a good amount of us are the ones that we speak up. That's if your firm's like the right firm, they'll listen to that because, hey, why don't we do this? It saves us money. It makes us work faster. It'll help the client. And it's been tested and researched. Why not? You know, and like, hey, here's another firm that did it, or here's another sample project where they've done it successfully, things like that, not just in construction, but maybe even like the way we do our BIM workflows and all that stuff. That's us. It's, it's not like the older engineers that are coming up with that and like implementing that new technology. It, it usually what I found is uh, someone like us, like bringing it up to our companies and asking, why don't we do this? So it's really looking bright and there's a lot of opportunities for innovation. 
hundred percent. I feel like I want to wear a cape now and just start flying. Like I feel so empowered. I know you're a big proponent of mentorship. How important do you think it is to establish a culture of mentorship? And what was your experience with it? You know, that sort of ties into what we just finished talking about, being able to speak up. A lot of times we might almost try to make mentorship a little too cumbersome when it can be really quite simple. And I've definitely been a factor of leaning on others and sort of defining my deficits by learning from people who know, you know, are probably more experienced or have more knowledge in one niche versus another. Matt, something that kind of ties into what you just said, bringing ideas back to your office and also identifying even more tenured seasoned professionals as champions of mentorship is really important to lean on them. This, to me, on this platform, on this podcast, and on similar other podcasts, and on people who take the time to develop content like this, this is like mentorship. Matt, I just met you. Kara, I've met you before, but I feel that we're kind of in this boat together, and we're learning from each other. And you know, this is probably not the end of our running into each other, right? As an industry, I think we're probably going to see each other's faces again. And so I think that's the idea behind mentorship is that you have these magical moments of interacting with people and being able to leave behind an indelible impact. And that's in terms of lifting them, of saying, hey, you know, this is not a stuffy environment. I definitely can identify with some of your concerns. I had to get over those hurdles. And mentorship goes two ways. There's no age to being a mentor, right? You can be 90 years old and be a mentor. You could be 90 years old and have a 20-year-old as your mentor because there's different paradigms that you bring onto each other. In an environment where you're sort of feeling lost, I've definitely had these moments where you kind of feel that folks aren't listening, that maybe your ideas aren't being heard. Then you identify someone who is willing to listen and you form kind of this existential relationship where there's communication that emboldens you as a professional, right? It doesn't have to be that you're meeting every other week or every week. It doesn't have to be anything strict or verified. It can just be someone that you lean on and find inspiration. I actually could take that one step further in this world of social media where we can connect you know, via LinkedIn or other platforms and find people that have done amazing work and you just admire what they do. You could send them a message and start interaction that way. The world that we live in is really conducive to that. You can have, in a sense, what are known as virtual mentors, where literally you've never met anyone, but you know that if you send them a message and you get a response back, that's a really good feeling to say, oh, wow, I had no clue because I thought that you're a New York Times bestselling author and I sent you this message and I got a response back. How awesome is that? That is the definition of mentorship is to lean on others, to lift yourself up, but also when you build that confidence to look back and lift others up, that's all you have to do. That it is what it is for me. His mentorship is, uh, doesn't have to be anything fancy. You could just be being responsible and being human and being sensitive and learning how to say thank you and then passing it back. I don't know anybody that hasn't gotten to where they are, at least in the AEC industry, you know, doing it alone. If you're out of school, you're not going to start your own construction firm or engineering firm right away. I don't think there's a way to do that safely or responsibly. It's kind of like the apprentice and the mentor. I've learned all of my stuff from everyone that's helped me and passing it on to the next generation with uh, whatever I can to help. And I think that's how the industry gets better, for sure. Yeah, I completely agree. And I will just say that I am shamelessly stealing 
defining your deficit. I love that. Essentially, it's like minding your gaps. Exactly. It just, yeah, it's good. It's a better way of saying I suck at this, right? Alex, to end off here, we have a wide breadth of listeners from young engineers, maybe still in college, maybe even defining themselves prior to college, all the way up to practicing professionals. Do you have any final advice for engineers considering a career similar to yours? So I'm going to use the very wise words of one of my mentors, who is a virtual mentor, but now we've seen each other's faces via the tube through the pandemic. Evelyn Lee, who's an architect, but here's the phrase that I kind of appropriated. Thank you, Evelyn, if you're listening. So that phrase is, don't think of your career as a destination. Think of your career as a journey. Because if we're able to think about it that way, it uh, reduces and relieves us of the stress from meeting expectations that we put onto ourselves. And all we can do as professionals in the built environment is to you know, build ourselves up as much as we can with the anticipation that what we're doing now at this moment is giving it 110%. And then years from now, we aspire to grow professionally. But even if we don't know where we're going to end up, we know that we're preparing ourselves to get there. So that's the advice that I would give your listeners is to think of your career as a journey and not a destination. It also makes you kind of enjoy even like all of the learning experiences that come with the different choices that you make in your career. Yes. Amen to that. Thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate hearing from you. And next time I'm in Houston. Thank you both so much. This was wonderful. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and there are any questions you may have. To leave them, please visit structuralengineeringchannel.com. There you will find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, which is episode number 74, as well as any links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during the episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, we wish you the best in all your structural engineering endeavors. The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.